I've been thinking about milestones and those monuments and those markers uh, that are down the road that lead us on our journey. And I was thinking about some drivers that I've encountered on the road, and I feel like we all have our own driver stories, but maybe you've noticed a phenomenon that I've noticed, which is that drivers don't just kind of stay in the middle of the lane that they are. They tend to start veering from side to side in the lane, and that's especially concerning if you're driving next to a semi and it starts getting a little bit into your lane. And I won't name any names of who I've been, who I've rode with, who who tends to kind of veer to the side. And um, but there's someone that I, I've rode with quite a bit who, if their eyes are turned left or right, that part of the lane they just start going over. Uh, and that can be a little concerning when you're in the car, and it's like there's like a string tied from their eyes to the steering wheel, and as soon as it turns, they start turning over. And, uh, and I think that it's interesting that, you know, if you've ever driven on a highway and they've got those concrete barriers along the side that block off the, uh, the side of the, the highway there, you can't help but be a little bit afraid that you're going to hit these barriers. And what happens is you start watching the barriers, and then you start getting closer and closer and closer to them. And so where we set our eyes affects where we go, and it can alter our path, and we can start drifting towards wherever we set our eyes. And so we are in a series where we are looking at the fact that God calls us to have a faith that makes a monumental impact in the world, and yet do we always go on that path that God has has laid before us? And there are certain mile markers on the road. There are certain monuments of celebration of things that, that turn our eyes and sometimes towards God, sometimes not towards God. And so today we're going to talk about some corrupt monuments, the monuments that, that don't lead towards God, that lead astray. And so we're going to read from uh, the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. If you've got a Bible in the room, you want to pick it up. We're in 2 Kings 18. If you've got a phone, you've got a digital Bible, you can get there. Uh, But we're going to be in 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of King Hosea, son of Elah of Israel, Hezekiah, son of King Ahaz of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, he broke down the pillars, and he cut down the sacred pole. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah after him, or among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. Hezekiah is a major king of Judah. He's that kind of king that you can't help, but if you come after him, you're getting compared to him. And he's this, this king that is celebrated, and part of that celebration is the, the kingdoms of Judah and Israel split. So the kings in Judah uh, and the kingdom of Israel uh, were their own separate nations for a while. And the Assyrian army came through and conquered Israel, and King Sennacherib came down towards Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah was in charge, and 
Jerusalem did not fall. And that alone is going to make you a prominent name in the king's list. But the, the authors of the Bible are going to attribute that to the way that Hezekiah ruled, that he was faithful to God and was not uh, wavering, and that he, he didn't allow for Israel to kind of, to, for Judah to kind of follow uh, the wrong path. And so it's hard to imagine, you know, King Hezekiah at age 25 becoming king. And you could imagine at 25 deciding to kind of make some big overhaul. And he starts tearing down all of these alternative places of worship. And you can imagine that's got to ruffle some feathers. Uh, he couldn't have had a lot of amazing support from everybody in his time when he's coming in uh, to tear down these, these worship sites, uh, alternative worship sites. And that, that verse we read, it said, he removed the high places. You know, they, they lived in this kind of, and we still somewhat conceptualize this, that like the higher you are, the closer to God. And we know that there's not some sort of spatial thing there, but you know, they would build most of these worship sites up on top of hills and on top of mountains. And so he's up in these high places and he's removing them and he broke down the pillars and he cut down the sacred pole. Now, most, a lot of Bible translations will put a little footnote on that sacred pole and say, or um, something about the Ash, Asherah, which is a Canaanite deity, uh, a, a goddess, and it was kind of connected around fertility. And there's some hints at what exactly Hezekiah is not a fan of, what exactly these places were doing wrong. Uh, written at the same time, uh, we've got the prophet Hosea, who in Hosea 4 talks about these sites becoming uh, places of temple prostitution. Of, of, and and I, I appreciate that in his text in Hosea, he talks about, you know, we could gripe about the temple prostitutes, but let's talk about the men who come and take these temple prostitutes. And so there's this, this idea not only of physically kind of adulterating themselves, but also spiritually that they're not actually following after God, that, that this Canaanite, these Canaanite gods and goddesses are kind of getting wrapped up into their faith and they're kind of being led away from uh, the path that God has for them. And so you could imagine these people who see this young king taking over and saying, you know, why would you got to tear down our site? You know, Let's say we restricted worship there, but maybe this would be a good historical place. You know, we've worshiped here forever. We've, Moses' serpent staff thing is here, and, and we, we love this thing. Why can't we just leave this as this historical monument? Uh, but but he Hezekiah uh, does away with it. He rejects it because uh, it is going to corrupt the people. It's going to corrupt their nation. It's going to corrupt everyone, and so it can't be uh, allowed to stay and so, I, we, we can't help but, I mean, I know that you're thinking and I'm thinking about the, the moment that we're in historically in which people are having big conversations around what monuments get to stay, right? And, and people are protesting certain monuments, and uh, there's too many where you can't get into analysis of every little one. But, like, the, the general thought is these monuments related to slavery, to the Confederacy, to any sort of moment that was about slavery, should these things stay for history's sake or should they be removed because they are lifting up values that we reject? And you could imagine King Hezekiah in that same world, right? Of, well, you know, should we continue this Asherah worship site or maybe leave it for historical marker? 
Or should we start over and say, that thing doesn't lead us to God. That is not our values. Let's do something else. And I think that part of this conversation that we have to keep in mind is there's a difference in history and there's a difference in that end and the things we want to commemorate to celebrate. Like, what are the values we want to celebrate and put on people's sight? You know, that your focus is going to go to these things and it's going to be taken this way. And so that's where our conversation is, is, is how are we going to look towards things that lift us up instead of bringing us down? And I think there is, we need to be reminded, there's too much history. Any person in school has seen, I mean, we got all these different subjects, and you read history of this one little time frame, and you can't even learn that history. There's too much history. So we get to make the decision of, of what parts of our history we want to celebrate and which ones we want to contextualize and condemn, which ones you know, we just have to edit out because we don't have time for it. And so King Hezekiah decided that those sites were enough that they deserved being dismantled. And it's not just that those sites are going to be dismantled. We're going to talk about them, and the Bible's going to talk about them, and they're still going to be preserved in history, but these can't function for people. They can't be in people's line of sight anymore. And I was thinking about all of these things that are going on in the news, and maybe you were surprised like I was to get some news out of Mississippi yesterday. Uh, Mississippi has, I don't think, ever been, um, you know, imagined as the leading edge of turning over slavery and, and kind of leading edge of, of overturning racism. But Mississippi uh, made some progress in some spheres yesterday. And so, just to give some background on Mississippi, when the country in 1865 decided to abolish slavery, which this building that, that I'm, I'm in right now, it was built six years after that moment. But in 1865, they abolished slavery in the 13th Amendment, and only a few states did not actually ratify that amendment. And so Mississippi was one of the few states that in 1995 finally officially ratified the 13th Amendment. But maybe you've seen or read that they accidentally forgot to send in paperwork on it. So actually, it wasn't until 2013, seven years ago, that Mississippi finally as a state officially ratified the 13th Amendment about 148 years late. So they've not necessarily been fast in this conversation. But yesterday, the House of Representatives, like the House part of the state of Mississippi, voted 85 to 34 to begin the first steps toward removing Confederate emblem imagery from their state flag. And we often in our society get into making everything partisan, Republican, Democrat, left, right. Uh, and so I want to mention something from the House Speaker, uh, Republican Jason White, who said this about trying to get this to pass. Uh, he said that he viewed this flag and this imagery as a symbol of hate, and he said, by changing our flag, we don't abound, abandon our founding principles. We embrace them more fully by doing what is right. We're not moving further away from our founding fathers' visions. We're moving closer to them. We're not destroying our heritage. We're fulfilling it. And there's a way in which uh, you can Christianize that and, and to say, when we reject parts of our history, we do so fulfilling Jesus' vision for the world, not rejecting it, uh, not abandoning, but more fulfilling that, that history when we live it out rightly. And so there are certain things that celebrate oppression, that celebrate sins in this world, 
that maybe we shouldn't be putting on a pedestal. Maybe we shouldn't be celebrating. Uh, And so they should be pushed off the pedestals of celebration and put into the cautionary tales of history books, of documentaries, of museums, places that have the ability to contextualize that, hey, something wrong happened here, and you can know about it and you should know about it. But there's a difference between that and what's the public. Here's where I want to set the eyes of my people on as they move about their day. And I think part of the challenge is not that just corrupt monuments are an outward problem. They become an inward problem. They shape the way we see the world and the way that we live. And corruption doesn't lead us towards holiness. And corrupt monuments don't take us on a path towards holiness. And I think about, you know, we, I think, should be and can be honest that we are not perfect. We have elements of corruption that seep through. But we can still be on the path of holiness while corrupt, while being transformed. What we can't do is we can't be on the path of holiness and celebrate corruption. When we celebrate corruption, we are on a different path. And so we are at risk or temptation to to fall into celebrating former sins, to fall into celebrating current sins, to be blind to sins. And I think about those former sins that end up being put on a pedestal. Maybe you've been there for someone's testimony about their their Christian journey. And at some point you thought, it kind of feels like they're really celebrating that self that they're saying was really sinful and bad. And I I know one particular scenario of kind of a sports and faith conversation. And and you get the speaker to come up to kind of do the evangelistic moment. And they talk about all of the alcohol and women stuff that they used to be involved in, and they keep going and they keep going. You're like, you know, it feels like you want me to realize that you are really cool with all of this stuff you used to be a part of. And it's this weird way of like fetishizing our, our former selves that we're saying, look how, look how better I am, look how I'm not that, and it's like we're celebrating that, that sinful part of our past. And so we're all kind of tempted, I think, into that kind of thing. As you learn your story and you say where you've been and where you're going, uh, how do we make sure to nuance that so we're not celebrating our former selves, but we're actually speaking against it? But we're also potentially going to celebrate and put on a pedestal our current sins. And some of those are obvious and more blatant. Uh, One of my kind of go-to examples of that is in the book of 1 Corinthians when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And he has to have this conversation with them because the line is, well, if grace abounds, whatever I do, it doesn't matter. God's going to forgive it. And so the bigger the sin, the bigger God's grace looks. And isn't that great? And so look at these crazy things I'm doing. God's grace, isn't that good? And so God, you know, Paul's having to talk to them and say, stop that. Uh, Just because you can do something, just because it's permissible doesn't mean you should. And there are clearly still things that, that are destructive that hurt people. And in 1 Corinthians 5, you get him have to tell the community, don't celebrate that a man is sleeping with his stepmom. That's a part of the scripture, part of your Bible. It's a weird thing that you have to actually announce. Um, But there's ways in which people end up celebrating moments of of sin and, and corruption. And so I think we can kind of get on board with most of those obvious sinful things, most of those obvious corruptions. But what gets sneakier is there's a lot of corruption, uh, a lot of corrupt monuments that are celebrated that lead us down the wrong path. 
Maybe you know the corrupt workaholic monument. The Western society, and particularly in our country, we celebrate putting all else aside to work. Uh, It could be a holiday. Let's find a way to make that commodified, and we're going to work hard. And we're all in the midst of this pandemic, and we've all been struggling with, one, finding a balance of of people trying to financially survive and, and stay safe, but also just people are feeling internally, I should be doing something, and it's hard to sit still for a moment. Uh, and we all feel this compulsion that we got to be working, and it's, it's true of me, and I know it's true of a lot of people, that it's hard not to feel compelled to first be a worker. Uh, and so we put on a pedestal workaholics. We put corrupt monuments of rudeness on a pedestal. It feels like in debates the rudest person is who a lot of people feel like won the debate. And somehow we celebrate that you out, you know, you were out belligerenting somebody else. Uh, and, and we celebrate these people who can be, you know, honest or straightforward as if this ugly, painful rhetoric uh, is something to be celebrated. We have corrupt monuments of anti-intellectualism of like, I know research says this, but, you know, look how great I am that I'm going to disagree and I'm going to go on an alternate path. And, and we start kind of pushing against people who, who have uh, education, whatever that field is. And right now that conversation is centered around science, but it just morphs over time into different fields. And, and so there's different kinds of corrupt pedestals that we lift up in the world. And the problem is, is they take root in us. And when our eyes go to them for too long, it, it changes us. And so we have to look at dismantling the corrupt monuments in our lives. And, and I think we should work towards the visible world, but also think about your internal world. You know, what, what are your eyes open to? What news sources, what Facebook pages, and, and, and uh, what, what are you consuming that affects the way you see the world? And, and as your eyes turn towards that, you notice you always end up going a different direction. And we got to have an eye for for where God is leading us and not where these corrupt monuments start to take us astray. And so in this, in this message, I want you to hear one uh, a special comforting word because the work of dismantling corrupt monuments is often really lonely because if the room feels celebratory about this corrupt monument, it can be hard either just to remove yourself from that uh, or to work towards o- overthrowing those corrupt monuments. But in our message today, 2 Kings talks about Hezekiah, and it said, The Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. When we take that sometimes narrow path, the one that leads towards God and holiness and life, it might feel lonely in the room sometimes, but take comfort that the Lord is with you and ultimately, the Lord will bless you. And so, in that, I want to invite you all to pray that, that God might change your eyes, that God might open your eyes to what those corrupt monuments are in this world, that God might open your eyes to what, where they've led you astray, but even more importantly, that God might open your eyes to where God is leading you and calling you today. And so, would you just join me in prayer? Lord God, we know that we easily wander, and we ask that you might set our eyes towards you, and that we might not 
celebrate things that lead us away from you, but that we might find comfort in your presence and in, and in the path that you bring us on. And so, Lord, I, I pray that even though it's often a path that feels lonely, I, I pray that those who are worshiping with us might feel a sense of community of your people uh, banding together to, to move towards you. And Lord, I ask that uh, for whoever has realized that they've been following the wrong monument, that they've been looking at something that is, is hurting them, that is harming them internally and also often externally. Lord, may you be comforting in that corrective call. May you energize us to take that step out from the comfortability uh, and towards your path. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.